Welcome to Talking Papers, the podcast all about research papers with the experts that wrote them. I'm your host, Haley Rymack. Today's guest is Dr. Heather Douglas, and she'll be discussing her paper, Legal Systems Abuse and Coercive Control, published in the Criminology and Criminal Justice Journal in 2018. Heather Douglas joined Melbourne Law School in 2021 and teaches and researches in the area of criminal law and procedure. She is an internationally recognized expert on domestic and family violence, and she coordinates the National Domestic and Family Violence Benchbook. She was an Australian Research Council Future Fellow from 2015 to 2019, and her project explored women's engagements with the legal system as part of their response to domestic and family violence. Her book, Women, Intimate Partner Violence and the Law, was recently published by Oxford University Press in 2021. Dr. Douglas is also interested in the operation and application of law in the context of Australian Indigenous settler relations. In 2012, she co-authored the book, Indigenous Crime and Settler Law, White Sovereignty After Empire, with Professor Mark Finnane. With Dr. Nicole Watson, she assisted in the coordination of the Indigenous Judgments Project and co-edited the collection, Indigenous Legal Judgments, Bringing Indigenous Voices into Judicial Decision-Making, also published in 2021. Heather is an elected fellow of the Academy of Social Sciences in Australia and the Australian Academy of Law. Previously, she was a professor at the University of Queensland School of Law. Heather has held visiting fellowships at Humboldt University Faculty of Law, Durham University Institute of Advanced Studies, and Oxford University Center for Sociolegal Studies. In 2021, Dr. Douglas received the very prestigious Order of Australia. Welcome, Heather. Thanks so much, Hayley. Heather, can you add a little bit to that brief overview of some of your work and tell us a bit about yourself and your work and where you're joining in from? Yeah, thanks very much. Well, to start with, I'm joining you from Melbourne in Victoria in Australia. And uh, I'm coming to you in this podcast from the unceded lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, uh, the Indigenous uh, First Nations people of this area. Um, and as you said, I've joined Melbourne University uh, just a year ago in the midst of a pandemic in Australia, which was a challenging thing to do. Um, I, I suppose just to add to what you've said, I think that I started out my career, well, I did start out my career as a practicing criminal lawyer. So when I came to academia, I was interested in um, criminal law as my main area of uh, focus. Uh, and that led me to look at criminal responses to domestic and family violence. But when I started to talk to survivors of family violence, uh, criminal law for many of them did, did recede a bit. So I've sort of expanded my work since then to look at protection orders and, uh, and sometimes family law as well. And in this paper, you specifically are looking at how perpetrators of violence use the family law system to continue abuse. Can you talk a bit about um, some of the background of what led you to begin this project? 
Sure. So a, a lot of the work that I've been doing in the past 10 years has been very much engaged with lawyers and, um, I guess, domestic and family violence support services and support workers and interviews with them and, and studies surrounding their work. But obviously a missing aspect of, of my work was actually talking to survivors of violence and how they experienced the law. So the project that you mentioned in the introduction under the Future Fellowship was to interview a number of women about their experiences with law and that really led my research into quite a few different directions just because of the experiences they told me about. So essentially this paper on legal systems abuse definitely came out of that. It wasn't something I was planning to write, but, but their experiences talked about this so vividly that it seemed uh, to be important to talk about it. And when I looked into the literature around it, it, it is a relatively sparse literature, and yet such an important aspect of their experience of abuse from their partners, uh, particularly, obviously, post-separation, uh, when, when couples are often engaging with the legal system, as you say, family law, but also in the Australian context, uh, civil protection orders as well is an important part of, of that uh, dual engagement with law, I guess, that is very common for women post a family violence or a relationship involving family violence. So that's where this research came from. You mentioned that, that there's this sort of sparse area of research and that what's really understood throughout the years is the experiences of survivors going through legal processes and the secondary victimization they may experience as a result of inappropriate treatment by the legal system actors, so judges and lawyers, as um, you highlight in your paper. But what's less understood is this engagement in litigation by an abuser as a continuation of the abuse. Can you talk a little bit more about some of the research on survivors' experiences of legal systems and the need for more research in this area? Yeah, for sure. So what I found when I was doing the background uh, research for this paper is that there's quite a few research papers that that look into the experience of, of uh, various systems like protection order systems, like family law systems, like the criminal justice process. What I was able to do with my research, which is different to a lot of the papers that I read, was speak to women over three years. So I could get this picture of how their engagement with the legal services or legal uh, practices and processes was working for them. So a lot of papers and research papers that I, I read in advance of writing this particular one that we're talking about would talk about these uh, moment in time interviews, uh, a one-off interview with a woman about her experience thinking back of, of the protection order system or the family law system. I, I was able to speak to women at three occasions over three years or two to three years about all the various engagements they had. So I could build a picture of this over time and hear their experiences of these processes over time. Uh, so I really think that's why this particular issue of legal systems abuse was highlighted so strongly for me. And it wasn't just in one system, it was across systems that this was being experienced. And um, the, their abusive partners were often really clever in terms of uh, the various ways they played one system against another. And I think that was what was missing in previous research, which was really fantastic in saying, well, the family law system is operating this way and these are the problems that women face or civil protection of the system and so on. But because this was over time, I was able to look at that perspective kind of experience, you know, see the experience build over that period of, of 
you know, increasing litigation in some cases, many, many times that women were being taken to court by their partners across different legal systems. Can you talk a bit more about your interviews with these 65 women over the three years and your other methods that you use to complete this research? Yeah, sure. So I recruited women mostly from uh, support services and legal systems because I wanted to recruit women that were already system involved. So this the study really doesn't involve all of those women that choose not to engage with legal systems and we know that there are many of them. So my study is very much on, on women who engage with legal systems. So that was a starting point. And I also recruited from a wide range of services. So services that operated with women from migrant backgrounds, as well as Indigenous services, and also services uh, working in the family law system with women who were able to pay for services. So uh, that led to quite a diverse cohort of women. And obviously, the women who were paying for services often although many of them were employed, often it was the equity in the house that was really going to be ultimately paying for their legal services. So it wasn't that they were, a lot of those women weren't particularly wealthy, but they did often have a mortgage or a house which they could leverage off to actually pay for legal services. So it was a quite a diverse group of women and I interviewed them mostly in person, although the second and third interviews sometimes were on the phone. I often interviewed them at the services from which they were recruited because I thought that was a familiar environment and that was where they selected to speak to me. Some women selected to talk to me at cafes or in rooms that I uh, hired in in public libraries or a couple of them came to the university where I worked to be interviewed there. So I really left it up to them as to where they felt comfortable to be interviewed at that first interview. And the second and third one's the same way. And sometimes, as I said, they were on the phone. One of the really important things about my study is that the attrition rate was very low. Um, And I think that's that says a lot about the value women got from the interviews as well. I think it was an opportunity for them to talk about their experience without any judgment. There was a lot of honesty amongst the women in speaking to me because I wasn't really giving them anything in particular and I wasn't asking them for anything in particular just to discuss their experience of systems with me. I also had the advantage, of course, to give them uh, vouchers, shopping vouchers, to come to the interviews and I think that was really important as well. They weren't a lot of money but I'm sure they were helpful in offsetting, you know, the time that they spent with me to some extent at least. So that was important. Uh, and I did want to interview them uh, sort of regular timeframes. I was hoping for around eight months because I thought that those eight-month timeframes would essentially allow for some development in their legal system engagement over that period. And obviously that wasn't the same for women. They weren't all available after eight months. Some of them were interviewed a little bit earlier, some of them a little bit later. But essentially, you know, around that six to eight-month mark, My attrition rate was quite low. I ended up with 59 women out of the 65 sticking with me throughout the project, which was fantastic. I think that gave me a really good sort of overview of of what happens to these women engaging with legal systems over time. It was also noticeable too that unlike my expectations around um, planning to talk to the women in the group, about their engagements with the criminal law system as a sort of key part of their journey, really the focus was much more on other kinds of systems. So the kinds of systems, and maybe this will be obvious for many people who are working with women in the field, but um, I found that they're most commonly they're involved with the protection order system, the civil protection order system, family law system, 
Some of them were involved in small debt claims in, in the lower courts. There was lots of issues around child support. Some were going to the criminal justice process and, and making complaints to police and these were being followed through with charges. But that was much rarer than their engagement with those other systems. Also, some of the women, many of the women in the migrant group were also dealing with visa issues as well and there were legal systems issues around that part of the process as well. So quite a diverse range of systems that went way beyond um, the criminal law process that I was expecting to hear the most about. There's a limitation too to the study, which is that it was conducted in Brisbane, Australia, so where I, I used to work at the University of Queensland in Brisbane. So the women were recruited around that area. That's amazing that you had the 59 out of the 65 remain on. It really must speak to how valuable the participants found this. I know in past projects I've conducted with survivors of family violence, they explained to me they really wanted to be a part of the study because they really were motivated to share their story in hopes that other women didn't have to go through it. And they really wanted to see systemic change and they were very generous with their time. And that was something that I heard over and over again is that they are hoping that this research kind of has an impact. Did people share with you part of why they were motivated to participate? One of the things that I asked each of the women uh, in the final interview was whether they would be prepared to take part in future if I could uh you know, follow up with them in a few years' time and so on. And at that point, a lot of the women talked about uh, that kind of thing, that they, yes, they wanted to make a change, they wanted to contribute, that they wanted their story to matter and count. Um, they, they, wanted, they wanted the changes, that they wanted their experiences of the negative things of the system to contribute to, to change. Absolutely, that was one of the driving motivators. Um, I think a lot of women too, uh, because I shared the transcripts with the women as well, so I sent them a copy and I think many of them read their transcripts and they read them each time. And, and I think a lot of women were seeing it as a sort of document of how far they'd come. So that was a positive experience for them as well. In your paper at the beginning, you start off with some background information about domestic violence, including that victims are at a heightened risk after separation. Maybe it would be helpful to hear a bit more of background about what is known about family violence or domestic violence and why risk is elevated after separation. There's a wonderful book by Dobash and Dobash UK writers on domestic and family violence, and they talk about how when a violent couple are together, the aim of the abusive partner is to control his victim their victim and then when they separate the desire changes to an aim to destroy her for leaving I think that best illustrates kind of what's going on for and it was men in my study violent men abusive men who were continuing the abuse post-separation but this notion of well I can't control her anymore I will destroy her for leaving me and so this becomes a really risky part of the woman's life in those sort of three to six months after she leaves. But for some women, that that lasts a lot longer. 
So I think there's a mixture in that early period post-separation where there are attempts to control, but they're failing. So the attempts are kind of shift to this attempt to destroy her, whether that's financially, emotionally, physically sometimes. It's documented as a very dangerous point in time for, for women in these contexts. In Australia and Canada, obviously, there are domestic violence death reviews that have shown this elevated risk period after separation in the months after separation. And I was very concerned about that for some of the women in the study who were pretty recently separated from their partners and that they were clearly in high-risk situations. Obviously, that's not the, the only risk factor. There's a number of documented risk factors. Another one is stalking. I was interested too in the concept of stalking in this notion of post-separation use of the legal system as a way to stalk the victim effectively. Some uh, researchers have called it procedural stalking or paper stalking. We could see that kind of mirrored there, that risk factor mirrored in the behaviour of litigation involvement as well, I think. And for 30 of the 65 women that you interviewed, you found they clearly identified that litigation was being used by their ex-partner as a tool or tactic to continue the abuse. Can you describe some of the key findings that you heard from women? The one that is clearest in my mind is Alex's experience post-separation. She basically said in her interview with me, she recognised this, this idea of um, litigation abuse. And she basically told me that her partner was using the law as a tool to abuse her. And she was at an early stage in the first interview when she really had to go to court because she had to defend herself against his applications, whether it was for the safety of her children or to maintain her protection order and so on. She had to turn up to court to defend these these cases. And there were lots of court cases. So in in the months after she separated, she was in court tens of times because mainly of her partner's application to various courts. And these were all over the place. So there were many applications in the family court for various changes to conditions around contact with their child. In the protection order courts, there were various applications for changes to conditions. He made applications himself for protection orders, which would be dismissed, but she would have to defend against them. He would be charged with breaches of protection orders and she would have to give evidence in those breach charges. Sometimes he would subpoena members of her family and her friends to to be witnesses for him, even though they were clearly really potentially witnesses for anyone, witnesses for her, but he was subpoenaing them just as a method of abusive, really, behaviour towards her. Uh, So she would have to convince the judge to not rubber stamp those subpoenas, to to not have those witnesses called to court, but sometimes they were. He was charged with uh, several breach of protection order matters for contacting her when he wasn't supposed to and so on. And he would try to get those breach of protection order matters heard separately, so in separate cases, which would mean that she would have to turn up more often. So she had to defend those applications to have separate hearings. He actually reported her to child protection. So she was investigated and her parents were investigated in relation to child protection matters and found to be nothing there. But nevertheless, she had to endure that investigation. 
She had issues in the small claims tribunal relating to debt, which was really family law settlement uh, of property, but he was using the uh, local courts to deal with these debts, which were also dismissed, but she had to go and defend it. He also created a civil case in in another court for defamation. So she was really across numerous courts for various actions, most of which were dismissed. Uh, but she had to be there to defend against them, which creates a whole lot of situations of high stress for her personally and emotionally, but also material issues around work and time. So she had to actually be at court for many hours over the previous six months when I first met her. And that means getting childcare, that means taking time off work. And if she wanted to get legal aid, she found that she was cutting back her work so that she would be eligible for legal aid so that she could have a lawyer. Because she was in court so much, she actually couldn't afford to pay privately. So this had implications for her employment. She changed her employment from being a full-time employee in a professional role to being a part-time cleaner so that she would have a lower income so that she could be eligible for legal aid. So the implications for her were extraordinary. And there were similar kinds of issues raised by others in the study. One of the classic tactical approaches of, of abusive partners was adjournment. So Women are often really stressed about the idea of going to court. I think people generally are pretty stressed about going to the court to to give evidence or to to make an application. It's not something most people do regularly. In this particular context of domestic and family violence where women not only have to go to court, which is stressful in itself, but also to confront their abuser there, that's obviously, you know, highlights the, the stress that they're under in the court process. So an adjournment is a great way to get the women to court and then ask for an adjournment get her back to court another time. That was really common. And some women talked about their matters being adjourned on numerous occasions. And the trouble for courts with dealing with this is that often their abusive partners were unrepresented and running their own cases. And so uh, they didn't have the costs issues, but also there was an element that the court really needed to protect these unrepresented litigants to make sure they were treated fairly. So uh, they had, perpetrators in some ways had that advantage. So there were all sorts of issues going on for these uh, women in, in many different systems. You know, child support was another place where there was significant game playing, uh, disclosure issues in the family court, so property disclosure issues. So as I said before, a lot of the women, if they did have money and were in the family court, it was because they had some stake in the family home, often a big mortgage, but nevertheless some stake in that that equity in the family home. They were trying to get disclosure so that they could get a property settlement and often partners would hold off on disclosure. Some parties also, if they were represented on the other side, they would change their lawyer regularly, which would also allow them to get more adjournments because their new lawyer would have to get on top of matters. So, yeah, look, the, the, the scope of abusive tactics in these courts really is the scope of your imagination, I think. You talk about that scope and you've summarized it really well, these, these multiple applications, changing lawyers, the always trying to change conditions, taking out frivolous protection order applications, kind of bizarre applications for witnesses that aren't even necessarily relevant or helpful. And you also highlight how the Australian context that has separate courts for all the different matters is unfortunately set up in a way 
that makes the abuser have the upper hand and that there's all of these multiple proceedings potentially going on that don't talk to each other and have different judges and different courtrooms and different court days and procedures and processes that the level of abuse may not be known before one specific judge, for example. And this is the similar way that the Canadian courts, for the most part, are structured as well. Can you talk a little bit about that multiple court proceedings and your recommendations surrounding that? Yeah, so in the family court in Australia, there is some effort to have consistency of judges. So in many cases, there at least is an attempt and an expectation that you'll have the same family court judge deal with your matter throughout all of the proceedings, which, you know, can be good and bad depending on the situation, but at least there is that consistency so that the family court judge should get a history of the matter. And that's in the family court. Nevertheless, there are still changes and and often family court cases go for many, many years. So there may be changes, but there is more consistency in those courts. So that should help judges get a a picture of the behaviour over time of what's going on in this particular matter. The civil protection order courts, though, in the magistrate's courts, the lowest courts in, in our states, those courts are you get the magistrate you get on the day. And so it's going to be a new magistrate often each time. And so especially with the busy courts, which have, you know, up to 10 or 12 magistrates, you can get one of 10 or 12 magistrates in your matter. So those magistrates won't necessarily know this case, won't, probably won't know the history of the matter. Sure, they'll have the file there, but often they won't have read the file because they'll be waiting to see what the parties are going to do because if there's going to be an adjournment, well, why would they bother reading the, the file in advance? So those courts don't have that consistency. And then obviously the other courts that I mentioned are similar. There's not necessarily that con- consistency. And as you say, there is no conversation between these courts usually about what's going on in each court. Courts can uh, call for information from these other courts when it becomes necessary to do so, but often it won't be something that's on the file just because it's on the file. That's not usually the way it goes. So, yeah, there's this real disconnect between systems and really no idea what's going on in each system. The added burden in the Australian context too is that the migration system, child support system, family law system is a federal system And the state systems are child protection, intervention orders, protection orders, and criminal matters. So that's an added burden, I guess, in terms of communicating across systems. So that's a real advantage if you want to play systems off against each other. And if you are getting known in one system, maybe turn your attention to another system and so on. So that really has potential uh, in Australia. So what we've tried to do in the Australian context is to try to build better information sharing in certain contexts. So basically we have these information sharing contexts in high risk cases. So that allows for a situation where a woman is identified as at high risk by either a police officer or the court, that a team can get together which consists of the people working with her. So it will include police in that area, the support workers, the relevant systems that are at play in that particular case, and they will be uh, talking with each other regularly to look at what's going on and share information across the systems around that woman. So that should help with information sharing. Uh, It still doesn't happen very well between courts, though, 
And I think it's still possible for things to be happening in courts and this information sharing system not to pick up on those differences. But I think it is a real improvement in some cases in terms of getting everyone on the same page about what's going on in this woman's life and how best to support her. Something I think is really important and something that we've been debating in Australia a lot over the last couple of years is the role of coercive control and understanding coercive control in the context of domestic and family violence. And coercive control is, I think, really a terminology that has been brought to the world, really, by Evan Stark from the US. Others have talked about this concept, but he really has uh, brought it home to us, I think, really strongly. And it's been picked up here in a lot of the debate lately here. And I think that understanding domestic and family violence in that way might help with us dealing with systems abuse. So if we see the court as an opportunity for coercive control, exercising control, continuing to exercise control over the victim in a family violence relationship, then we can really bring that lens to to exploring what's going on in relation to a subpoena, what's going on in relation to an application to have cases heard separately, what's going on when people are asking for an adjournment. Is this is this really necessary or is this an aspiration to further control the person? So some of the things that I've suggested as practical responses by courts is that it's always better, in my view, to stand a matter down rather than adjourn a matter to another day. So if we stand a matter down and give the person a couple of hours to contact a lawyer if that's what they're saying they need to adjourn for or to to read a document or whatever it might be, that means that the woman is just hanging around and has got ready for court for that day and isn't having an extra day where she's preparing and all the stresses associated with that, both material and emotional. And so that is one one way we can, can help, I think, in this context. But also to be trying to look across systems and, and ask questions. If lawyers across systems can ask questions, so her lawyer can ask questions across across systems about what's going on in criminal justice processes and so on and find out about that and bring that to the court's attention. So lawyers have a job to do here too, to recognise the potential of legal systems to be used in a coercive and controlling way and need to, to act carefully in order to, to bring that to the attention of courts. If we see domestic and family violence through the lens of coercive control, that can help in some ways to ameliorate the use of systems to abuse in this way. Stark has defined coercive control as a strategic course of oppressive conduct that is typically characterised by frequent but low-level physical abuse and sexual coercion in combination with tactics to intimidate, degrade, isolate and control victims. Thanks so much for reading that, Heather. And It just reminds me too that when we're talking about violence and you've done such a great job of expanding on this in your paper, it's really all the forms of violence. And in BC, where I am in Canada, definition of family violence is expansive. Thinking of coercion and control, one thing that comes up a lot is just really the need to break that definition down and to have more understanding on what that really means and what that really looks like because family law lawyers in BC are required to have no training on family violence. You've highlighted here how important it is to have that understanding. And in your paper, you write that where justice system actors understand the dynamics of coercive control 
they may make more appropriate decisions and be more likely to look at evidence of the power and control dynamics and ultimately lead to a more accurate assessment of how the legal system can appropriately respond. Can you talk a bit about what it's like for lawyers in Australia, outside of just family law, of course, and what requirements there potentially already are or what you hope could be in place to potentially allow people to have sort of the tools to recognize when litigation abuse is happening? The big advantage in the Australian context in family law legislation is that domestic and family violence is, or family violence is the terminology in the Family Law Act. This is another problem in Australia, actually, is we use all this different terminology. But in the Family Law Act, family violence does include coercive control. It doesn't actually define what that means, but that language is included there. And the courts have sometimes talked about coercive control and, and given examples of that. And in the jurisdiction where I did my interviews, the civil protection order, which is state-based legislation, also includes coercive control and definition of domestic and family violence. That was one of the advantages of working in that state, is that coercive control is already in the legislative tools. But that's not the same in every state across Australia. And I think there's moves towards making that more consistent. Certainly, that was a, a little bit of an advantage, I think, in the Queensland system, the Brisbane area where I was doing these interviews. In terms of education for judges and lawyers, this is really a direction that I'm taking my work in at the moment, along with some other things. But there's a lot of discretion on law teachers as to how they teach family law. I think it would be unlikely for for most law teachers to teach family law without going into family violence. I think it's such an important part of family law litigation is cases that involve family violence. So I think it's a pretty core issue in Australia, but that doesn't necessarily mean that people get it or are actually taught about it. And I think it's fairly discretionary the way that family lawyers ultimately receive their education post-admission to legal practice as well. So it would be up to them how they get their continuing professional development and education and what conferences they go to and what information they actually get access to. Having said that, it is, as I said, in litigation in Australia, family violence is very common when cases are litigated in the family courts. There's a lot of decisions that are around family violence, not necessarily specifically around coercive control, but certainly around family violence. One of the projects I'm working in at the moment is with a group of scholars in different jurisdictions across Australia, and we're working up a project around what makes good family violence lawyering. And we've done some interviews and focus groups with various organisations that work with survivors, and we're going to branch out to speak to private lawyers about this as well. But we're starting to try to build a program of work around uh, teaching this issue, what, what, what makes good family violence lawyering, what do family violence lawyers need to know. And so that's something that I'm working on at the moment. But there's really no clear education around that. It, it's really luck of the draw as to whether you go to the right conferences, whether there's some sessions on family violence or whether you open yourself up to that kind of education. Uh, I'm also doing a lot of work at the moment as a result of my contributions to the National Domestic and Family Violence Benchbook around judicial education of family violence and coercive control. And uh, we did interviews with a whole range of judges over the some 
Australian summer break uh, this year, uh, talking to judges about coercive control, how they see it in their courtrooms and how they deal with it in their courtrooms. And we've just produced a, a report about that, uh, which is, you know, on the cusp of being released, hopefully very soon, and some videos that will hopefully be shown at uh, judicial education seminars, along with a, um, a presentation slides and suggested notes for judges to present to their peers. So this is really something that is happening in Australia right now, how to really get the message across to lawyers and judges working in this space about what family violence looks like. And coercive control is a core part of, of that program of work. And it's so fundamental for the people that you've interviewed to have that recognition. And just going back to your example of Alex's experiences, um, which I know is a pseudonym, but her experiences of being in multiple courtrooms and having to change her entire life to respond to the litigation abuse. And you also report of one person who'd been to court 60 times in one year and had been involved in proceedings for 19 years. And when I think of this and all that you've written, I'm also thinking of your 2020 paper where you write about family violence, lawyers, and debt. And you wrote about how these women face the high financial costs and debt, and it was often a result of being in a situation where they were experiencing litigation abuse. So they had to pay their lawyer to keep assisting them with these applications. Can you talk a bit about this project and how it connects to your later work and the financial implications that people experience from this litigation abuse? Yeah, look, that, that research paper that you're talking about, the debt paper, is, is part of this same study, in fact, and uh, just focusing down on the debt question and the money question and the use of lawyers. That was such a clear problem. And I think that some of the partners in these cases were, were making efforts to, to burn the, the family pool of money incredibly spitefully. And it's extraordinary to me that these abusive partners would effectively destroy the property pool that they have a part share of in order to destroy their partners. But the destruction of their partners seems to become more important than their, their own well-being, which is incredible, really. I found that was the case in some of these situations, that the abusive partner was prepared to, to really burn up the entire property pool just to not see his partner get any of the finances from settlement. You know, this was really difficult for women because they go back to court in order to defend what they have. But each time they go back to court, especially through family law property matters, obviously that pool of property diminishes with each moment that they're in court if they're if they're using a lawyer. And that's the thing as well is that uh, while a lot of the abusive partners seem to be okay about going to court without representation, a lot of the women were really uh, uncomfortable about being in court without support. So really felt that they had to make every effort in many cases to try to get someone to come and represent them, which was at a cost. And you could see women kind of pulling together money from relatives, borrowing on their super, you know, maxing out their credit cards which is obviously in the longer term really problematic, but in order to make sure that they could pay for lawyers to support them through these processes. Because these processes not only were about the property, but they were often also about contact with the children that was kind of packaged up together. And, you know, it was 
quite terrible to, to see the kind of levels of debt that some of the women were in. And I think this is pretty well documented now that women leaving violent relationships, their financial situations are often parlous as a result. And although they may have lived in, you know, privately owned accommodation and been able to, you know, run a car and, and uh, you know, buy things, uh, when they leave that relationship, they really are not in a position that, you know, they're struggling to pay the rent. And so, you know, and part of this, I think for many of the women in my study at least, part of it was the cost of legal representation, thousands and thousands of dollars spent in that direction, which is quite a travesty. In Australia, this is an issue that's been recognised, actually, the cost of lawyers and especially the cost of lawyers in the family law context. And there have been suggestions about how this might be improved. But so far, we still see incredibly high costs associated with private family law lawyers. You mention in your paper this missing middle, the population who doesn't qualify for legal aid because their income is too high and they can't actually afford a lawyer, but they don't necessarily fit into that economic bracket where they would qualify for a government lawyer from legal aid. And we see that a lot in Canada as well. And it is a huge population of people, many of whom are women experiencing violence, who are then having to go and represent themselves in court. And it's very, very problematic. Yeah, very difficult. And I I saw a lot of these women getting very piecemeal support from lawyers as well. They would get assistance from a, a lawyer to perhaps settle an affidavit or they would get assistance from a lawyer to perhaps come to one of the days of hearing for a particular reason, but not not others. Uh, so, you know, it was very piecemeal for some women, which is obviously problematic as well. And, and it's not really truly uh, representation. You mentioned that one response that the legal system potentially offers to people is criminal responses. So potentially harassment or threats or stalking. But you write that in practice, survivors are unlikely to take these legal actions against their abuser, in part because it will require more court time and potential costs with really an unknown outcome. And another piece you mentioned as a potential option, but is very complex, is having this abusive litigant be declared potentially a vexatious litigant and be restricted in what types of court applications they could bring. Can you talk a bit about how those options aren't aren't really an answer to the problem and potentially what other recommendations you're making? Of course, when women leave their abuser, they often don't want to have any contact with them at all. And that's why systems, legal systems abuse is so problematic because it's the one place where many abusive partners are still legitimately allowed to be in contact with with their victim. Uh, So the last thing many women want to do is really be in court. And if they do make a complaint about stalking and so on, they have to go back to court. They have to be a key witness and you know, that might not be something they're comfortable to do. The other thing too is they may apply for costs, which might help to offset their own costs in terms of their costs they've spent on the action. But often the experience of the women in my study was that they sometimes did get costs orders, but then their partner wouldn't pay the costs. And so they would have to, if they wanted to get those costs, 
open litigation again in order to get those costs. So again, that would require them to go back to court to deal with that new application again, renew that application. So that was really problematic on both counts. The issue too of identifying someone as a vexatious litigant is really fraught and it's a tough test. And in some ways, that's good that it's a tough test, of course, because we know that a lot of women leaving violence, the law is really important to them. They want to get a protection order. They want to get closure around contact with their kids so that, you know, they know when their partner can see them or not see them and so on. They want to get closure on their property. Um, So they need to use the legal system themselves. They want to uh, have breach charges. They want to change conditions and so on. So the real potential unintended consequence of freeing up the vexatious litigant rules, which are quite strict, as I said, is that women will be locked out of the legal system when they need to access it. And you can imagine abusive partners using a relaxed vexatious litigant power in order to claim that their victim partners are indeed vexatious. So I think that's really problematic. The other problem also is with these split systems in relation to vexatious litigant requirements is that For example, in the family law, you can be made a vexatious litigant in the family law system. And although there might have been a number of courts you went through in relation to that family law process, it's that family law process that is the relevant process to determine whether the person's vexatious or not. So it's a pretty narrow option and it's a pretty vexed one in terms of how to ensure that we open the process enough to to make it easier for women to have that claim successfully made but don't close it too much to mean that they can't access the legal system when they need to so it's a that would be a particularly tricky route to to go down i really think that the best way to go forward with this is as i've mentioned before uh, really changing the way judges and lawyers approach domestic and family violence and understand domestic and family violence. And this lens of coercive control being the way that we we see domestic and family violence as as a sort of key lens. Because then I think the way we look at what's going on in our courtrooms, what's going on in the application processes that we're seeing in our courts or seeing from the other party, we can actually name that and question the reason for the application that's being made. And perhaps create methods of ensuring that uh, we don't delay processes, we don't put them on to other days, we don't allow the adjournments, for example. We don't need the victim to come to court every time. So we're not going to make decisions against her interests, but we're going to deal with the problems that are being created by this abusive partner by managing those issues uh, in the absence of the victim. So if he's not disclosing, we don't need her there to to listen to his many excuses about why he's not disclosing. And some of those applications and issues might be able to be dealt with by other court management strategies, process management strategies, which don't require her to come to court. They might be less used too by perpetrators if if abused women don't have to come to court to to deal with them because they won't be getting what they want to see there uh, potentially. Uh, So I think there are better ways to deal with this through education of judges and lawyers around this issue. One of the concerns I had also with some of the comments from the women and something that I explore more deeply in the book is legal ethics as well. And in Australia, the primary lawyer's ethic is to the administration of justice. And one of the things that I noticed in what women told me about lawyers for their 
partners where where the abuser had a, a lawyer, often the lawyer was behaving in a similarly coercive and controlling way. And so, for example, extending out cross-examination unnecessarily, being the mouthpiece for the abusive partner rather than the lawyer for the abusive partner, which are different things, I think. And so not living up to their ethical standards of to the administration of justice primarily. That's something that might be worth thinking about in Australia as well, really educating lawyers properly about their, their ethical commitment to the administration of justice first and foremost, so that they're not just simply a mouthpiece for the abusive partner to, you know, examine, cross-examine the victim in the way their partner wants them to, their, their client wants them to, but to be a legal filter for that, well, that's not relevant. I'm not going to ask those kinds of questions. I have a duty to the administration of justice first and foremost. So there might be changes we could make in legal behaviour as well, lawyers' behaviour around these issues as well. And finally, I guess, the information sharing and how we might improve that across our court systems in Australia is something else I think we can develop further. Last question, what do you most want people to know about this work and your findings? Look, this is really happening and you need to know about it and you need to be aware of it so that you can see it if it is happening. And I was really heartened to hear actually that several judges reported this to me. They kept for a while a copy of this article on the bench beside them when they were doing domestic violence court. And I thought, well, that's great. I mean, that's really what I'm pushing for more than anything is awareness, given that my, I guess, my major conclusion is, you know, knowing about this can help you see it. And when you see it, you will behave differently as a result. You won't allow that adjournment or you'll deal with that application differently or you'll see those subpoenas as not in the interests of justice and you won't allow them. I think that's, that's really the key message here know about it, know what might be happening and think about how you might deal with things if you see it happening. There's also the issue of it happening literally in court as well, that abusive partners might be behaving coercively in court. So the strategies, if if judges are aware of that might be happening, what are the strategies they might implement in their courtrooms? For example, making sure that the victim and the perpetrator are out of eye line of each other when they're standing in the courtroom. These kinds of things are really easy to implement. I think seeing it and understanding it might be going on is is the key takeaway. Thank you so much, Heather, for your time and insights and sharing your work with us. And I'm just so appreciative. Thank you, Hayley. It was a pleasure. Here are the key takeaways. Judges and lawyers need to have education on coercive control. Being able to see and understand dynamics of power and control and recognize when litigation processes are being used to further abuse requires education. Heather explained that if judges and lawyers can see it and understand what's going on, this is the first step to responding appropriately. Coercive control refers to a pattern of behaviors that an abuser uses to gain control or power over another person. This can include acts of intimidation, threats, and humiliation, and it can also include multiple court applications for the purpose of bringing the other party to court and trying to assert control. As with all intimate partner violence, it is gender-based, meaning disproportionately it is men who are perpetrators of violence and women who are victims. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen to this conversation. It would mean so much to me if you could take 45-ish seconds and go to the show page on your app and give the podcast a review. In the Apple app, it's at the bottom. 
And in the Spotify app, it's on the left-hand margin. And I tell you this because it took me a really long time to figure that out myself. Um, So that's where it is. Feel free to leave a five-star review. Thank you. And it really does make a huge difference. So the show can be found easier and more people can listen. And so does sharing the show. So if you think there's someone in your life who may find today's episode interesting, you can share it with them too. Follow on Twitter or Instagram at Haley Rymack for updates on upcoming episodes. Thank you.